Hello and welcome to PSA Today. It is Wednesday, December 2nd. It's PSA Today's 20, I want to say it's our 26th episode. And PSA stands for Privacy, Surveillance, and Anonymity. And I am here with Kalia Young, my co-host. Hi, Kalia. Hey, Seth. And um, thanks to Kalia. We have a great guest today, uh, Adrian Gropper, who is a privacy engineer and former device engineer and focuses on patient privacy rights. And you can follow him at uh, A. Gropper uh, on Twitter. Um, welcome. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Nice to be here. So, Kali, I'll start with you. Um, why is he here? What does he have to share with us? So, and how did you meet him? Well, Adrian um, and I spend a lot of time in various technical working groups together. Um, and I'm on the board of a group called Patient Privacy Rights that Adrian is serves as the volunteer CTO of. And, and also, Adrian's a builder. So he's been leading a project called the Health Information Exchange of One. So I thought it would be great to have him on the show to for him to share more about what he's doing and how he got to where he is. So, so Adrian, yes, tell us your story. How did you get to now? Like you, you are a physician, which is unusual in our community amongst technical folks. Okay, uh, briefly, because uh, ancient history is not that interesting. But I am first and foremost an engineer. I, I do have a mechanical engineering degree from MIT, but don't let that confuse you. It was all computer work from day one. It's just I didn't want to do the prerequisites uh, of math and physics that would have been required if I had been in, in the electrical engineering department. So, um, But yes, I am definitely a builder, and I never practiced medicine beyond internship. I uh, became a serial entrepreneur, started, I don't know, depending on how you count them, half a dozen different medical device companies, um, all of them very heavily centered on computing as computing evolved from its very early days in the uh, late 70s, um, mid 70s, actually, uh, when I was doing research up until uh, most recently when I was working on things that uh, were very much web-based and standards sort of uh, open source directed for health records, uh, what we call personal health records these days. So anyway, uh, one of my uh, businesses was uh, quite successful. It was in radiology image, uh, image management. Um, and it enabled me to sort of uh, go into this recent phase of my career where I'm basically a privacy advocate, uh, not just in healthcare, uh, though that is a, a specialty, but in general when it comes to highly personal data uh, of any sort. And um, so the, the reason Kalia and I interact so much is because I have this uh, uh, perspective that I bring to the standards groups because I don't represent a commercial interest. So I'm not trying to pitch a particular product yet, though we'll talk about HIV of one, and that might become a commercial thing someday. Um, but rather, I, I represent this uh, relatively unique perspective 
of uh, people having self-sovereign technology. Now, if you don't know what self-sovereign technology is, you could think of uh, Bitcoin or Ethereum um, as an example of self-sovereign technology because uh, they're not regulated by any jurisdiction. They don't represent any corporate entity. Um, and you don't have a privacy policy with Bitcoin or Ethereum if you don't want it. Now, if you want it, you have a relationship with somebody like Coinbase, for example, where you then are no longer self-sovereign. You have this uh, uh, custodial relationship. Uh, and again, people understand the value of that, and that's how most people behave. And so the, the last point I'll make before pausing is there are different kinds of custodial relationships you can have in terms of controlling privacy-related things, right? You could be self-sovereign, like I said, where you have no relationship at all. You could have a fiduciary relationship where, for instance, the custodian is a bank or a legal trustee or a guardian um, that, or a physician or a lawyer, right, that is basically acting, uh, is regulated, not centrally, they're regulated as an individual under uh, rules uh, that make them a fiduciary. And then you can have custodial relationships, which is the majority of them, where the entity that controls your data, whether it's Facebook or Apple or uh, anybody else, uh, isn't really regulated in any particular way other than by what they choose to publish as a privacy policy. Um, so uh, my expertise, because of all these decades in medical devices, is that I have this unique dual understanding of regulation of physicians through medical practice, in other words, as fiduciary, and regulation of the medical devices that I would start the companies around, uh, that are centrally regulated under, you know, FDA, but it could be any other kind of government regulation of that sort. And this makes me particularly dangerous, I guess, in, in commercial discussions, because I tend to not take it for granted that the regulation has to be in any one of those three categories, uh, right? That it could be self-sovereign, it could be fiduciary, or it could be uh, a device centrally regulated. Is custodial, uh, is custodial the third kind? Is custodial, yes. is custodial I would say custodial. In other words, if kind? you're dealing with a corporation as opposed to an individual, you, uh, again, it's a continuum, right? A bank is very heavily regulated. So they, they can be treated more like a fiduciary just by the nature of how tightly they are constrained, for instance, you know, what they can make money on. Um, but a stockbroker is not as heavily regulated and, you know, a social media platform is not regulated at all to speak of. And so they're all custodians in, in a sense. They, they all, I would call them a custodial relationship as opposed to fiduciary, but you see what I'm saying. They're, they're shades of gray. But when you're talking about regulated individuals, that's pretty clear. Um, you know, that they're responsible only to a court of law or to a licensing board in that hospital or that state. So I want to, uh, I, I do have an echo. Do you hear it? 
Yes, I hear it. You're muted now. So now I don't hear it. I think it's okay. Okay, we're good. We're, we're back. We're better than ever. So uh, this is great. Um, and just as an aside, um, the name of my company is Data Fiduciary Inc., we're going, you know, we do business as Spartacus, that's the brand. But from the get-go, the idea along the lines of what you've been saying is to create, you know, that, that data, a relationship with data de- deserves a kind of fiduciary relationship the way that a relationship with the law or our health or accounting and taxes does, right? That it is beyond, um, you know, all of us, you know, <clears throat> the vast majority of us to figure out how to deal with privacy and how to deal with our data. Um, and therefore we, we need help and we need help from people that we can trust um, whose sole purpose and sole business model is helping us. And there's nothing else um, involved there. So <clears throat> what I'd love to do is just because you have the benefit of this perspective going back to, I, I don't want to um, presume to know exactly when 74. you graduated from MIT, but I believe it wasn't in the nineties. Okay, so you have some pattern recognition here pre-internet um, that most Y Combinator, you know, twenty-two-year-olds out of Stanford don't have. Um, and without getting um, cynical here, um, or sarcastic, or snarky, um, I'd love to kind of go back to um, kind of what, how has the, how is your perspective or sort of the understanding of privacy? evolved, you know, if I look at your background and think, okay, you, you, there's, there's your years at MIT, there's post-MIT when you were in the computer industry pre-internet, then there was the, inter, you know, sort of the birth of the internet through the dot-com, which is maybe the third phase. And then I'd say the fourth phase is what I would call surveillance capitalism, which is sometime around the time of Google and Facebook and these sort of more nefarious business models that didn't necessarily start with the beginning of the dot-com era. So those four phases, how would you sort of uh, tease out sort of the, the, sure. the, the meaning uh, and, the, and the context? Of so uh, let me put it this way. Um, as I was going through medical school, uh, knowing that I would be an engineer and not a practicing physician, uh, my goal was to build devices that the doctors could use directly. In other words, to take the technologist or the lab tech out of the picture, to take the radiology tech out of the picture, to make specifically my the first business I tried to start um, was trying to make ultrasound, which as you know is safe and quite cheap to use, but is very difficult to interpret, to try and use computing to make ultrasound understandable and usable by a general physician, you know, an internist, a pediatrician, whatever, a surgeon, directly. And um, so, and that was basically the first third of my career. I was actually building blood chemistry analyzers that could go into a doctor's office before that concept actually had a name. You know, point of care instruments uh, was sort of attached to it. After that, uh, the, the there is really no privacy angle to those, right? They are an embedded computer in a medical device. Um, the there is no privacy angle, and more interestingly, there's no intellectual property question. Um, 
which we'll get to when we get to post-surveillance capitalism to where we are today. Keep this in mind. In other words, um, there's nothing wrong with having a black box in a chemistry analyzer if what you're reporting is a calibrated sodium result or potassium in your blood, right? Or generating an image of a phantom and it looks like a ball because you put a ball in a bowl of jello and imaged it, right? So there is no harm done to society if, no, because the output is calibrated. You're labeling the device. The thing that is because it's not being regulated by the FDA, it's not networked. but it could be European or Asian or whatever, is the output of the device in a particular indication for use. You know, you can use this device for that purpose. And nobody really cares what's in between the transducer and the output because the output is either right or wrong. Right? It's calibrated. So two different black boxes made by two different people, as long as they give the same result, nobody cares. Now, if you want to step all the way forward, since I was teasing you with what happens post-surveillance capitalism, where these uh, computing component is now not just a single part of a chain of processing, right, from a sensor to an output, but is now integrating information. It's taking information like, for instance, serial views of a breast mammogram uh, or measurements of uh, your uh, uh, COVID test combined with the symptoms history that you have and, um, you know, the locations that you've been in in order to tell you how long to quarantine for or isolate for, right? Whenever you have a process, which nowadays gets the fancy name digital therapeutics, because we want to charge you for that, and that process integrates information over time and from multiple sources, I would maintain that you can no longer regulate those things, no matter how hard people try, as black boxes, as secret intellectual property because what they're doing is the same job that a doctor would do. And we don't regulate doctors and the education of doctors in that way. Because again, the, the, we, we regulate uh, doctors as individuals, not as a device. And we hold them responsible based on their fiduciary relationship to act on our behalf, not on the basis of uh, anything else. Now, in order to do that, to hold that doctor responsible as a fiduciary, um, they have to be using open source tools. They, they have to be using open textbooks, open references. Uh, you know, the medications have to tell you what the ingredients are. It's not snake oil. Because otherwise, you cannot make this transition from the drug or the device, which, like I say, is regulated as a piece of secret intellectual property or as something that is calibrated in its output, like a drug is not secret, but you know exactly what it's supposed to do, um, versus regulating a machine learning AI process where there really is no single right answer. And you have to, um, I, I give another example to be clearer. You don't regulate cranes by who makes the crane. You regulate cranes the way they're installed on site at the construction site. And somebody, like an elevator inspector, a sophisticated, goes in and says, in this particular use, this particular site is okay to use. And if I 
lie or if I don't do a big bad job, then I can't be a crane inspector uh, anymore, right? But nobody says you're going to regulate. What? Pardon? Uh, Same with it, guns it, and gun Yeah, it's how you use the gun. You, you regulate I would imagine the guns and gun manufacturers. Um, you know, in the Black Lives Matter sense, uh, rather than concerning yourself with, uh, you know, Remington Arms. Uh, exactly. Uh, so uh, I know I skipped over the two phases that you asked about, including the internet. And uh, we can go back to that. Um, I mean, the, the big thing in between, uh, the, the big thing that the internet brought was the introduction of standards. Uh, they started before the internet in my, uh, what I said was my successful imaging business. Um, it, it, start, it started uh, because initially a CT scanner, which was one of these devices, was always made by the same people that made the uh, display console the workstation, as it's called, and they were regulated together. And eventually, in other words, the connection between them was proprietary and the vendor wanted to sell both. But it got too expensive for them to always have to put both, every time they made a change to the software in the workstation, to have to put the whole system through the regulatory pathway. So they they realized someplace in the early 90s, mid-90s, again, pre-internet, but post-ethernet, they realized that as the networking standards were starting to work, that it would be to their benefit to introduce a standard on top of Ethernet so that the, the workstation they sold would be regulated separately as a device by the FDA from the X-ray or uh, you know, CT scanner. Um, and this was obviously a benefit to everybody. And I seized on that and started this company, which introduced web protocols into this connection. So in other words, uh, I took the work on standards in specific to medical devices, to medical imaging called DICOM, if you want to know the name, and, and, and built a company where those standards were being applied over the internet standards, which were then very, very young. And that turned out to be quite successful. Now, was there a privacy angle to that? Not yet. But once you do have that introduction of the internet, it then became possible for patients to hold their own records because the standards and the internet now both existed. And what that turned into is this huge, and I won't use the vulgarity, um, but... Uh, uh, th this huge sort of preamble to surveillance capitalism, where now sort of 10 to 15 years in the commercial interest that I said would sort of interacting with the regulatory process, started to realize how to use standards uh, strategically to protect their interests. In other words, to make sure that they, uh, that they were not cut out by the use of the internet and by the introduction of standards from how the information was being used. And this predates Google's invention of surveillance capitalism by maybe a decade. And I, I built a company based on that realization called MedCommons, 
which wasted a huge amount of money, but I was in very good company because Microsoft and Google both tried to do the same thing as I was doing it in this personal health record sense. In Microsoft's case, including images like we were, and Microsoft basically spent a billion dollars and got nothing out of it. My company also shut down, has nothing to show for it. But that pissed me off so much that I became a full-time advocate. So that's the history of the internet and privacy in uh, 10 minutes. That's great. But by the way, I don't know if you have another question, but I, I would like to move to the present since you have this expertise That's great. Uh, in, as a data fiduciary. And, you know, it is very much the point of most interest these days. And I think Kalia will agree that people are not only struggling to figure out what regulations to wrap around a data fiduciary because they're not thinking of it the way we think about regulating doctors and lawyers, right? in that fiduciary sense where it's quite clear. So there's vagueness there that we could talk about. And they're also trashing about hugely to try and figure out what are data commons or data trusts or data anythings. Um, and so we now have in the last, I would say two years, quite recent, relatively speaking, uh, a lot of disinformation, confusion, but also interest, massive commercial and regulatory political even interest as to uh, in both of these dimensions. So um, I think it would be interesting given both of your backgrounds as I, well, I know Khalil a long time, but well, you know, I'm, what I'm to, yeah. in, the, in that context, I'm hearing echo again. Khalil, why don't you take this as well, the echo, uh, well, so I would have so in the in that context, I'm hearing echo again. Kalia, why don't you take this while the echo? Uh, sure. Um, so, yes, um, in the present, and, right and now, there is Adrian, uh, your, a significant your, innovation. Your, uh, You're building HIE of one. Uh, Want to tell us who that in is? HIE of one that we could talk about this in this context. HIE of one is what we're calling an example implementation of a bunch of standards, and the standards have evolved over time. Uh, right now, we're focusing on something called GNAP, which is the successor to OAuth and UMA. Um, uh, in the past, we worked on UMA. I was one of the principal. Uh, sort of contributors to the UMA 2.0, I um, after 1.0. And um, and uh, yes, yes. And GNAP stands for Grant Negotiation and Authorization Protocol. For those, for um, the but, user-managed uh, We also uh, pioneered uh, uh, the combination, the, well, there were no internet identity standards, but there started to be, uh, I mean, not internet, uh, I'm sorry, blockchain identity standards, but uh, consensus Uport introduced sort of blockchain identity in a practical way. And that was part of the HIE One project for going back about five years. So HIE of One, uh, that stands for Health Information Exchange of One, is basically the bundle of standards that allow you to operate 
a uh, trustee, a, uh, a semi-autonomous agent to control how your data moves or how it's processed, to use the jargon. And the idea behind HIE of One as a uh, group is that it is a self-sovereign demonstration of these standards. In other words, um, we it's a GPL project uh, for reasons that we can go into. It's not FRO licensed. It's it's licensed. Uh, under, I mean, it is FRO licensed. It's not Apache. It's a it's a free software project that we encourage anybody who wants to to basically. Uh, you know, use it under whatever policies they want. We don't control the policies any more than a blockchain um, controls policies for how people use a blockchain. Now, this uh, thing, though, that we, and we started this about six years ago, uh, around a personal health record use case. Um, what we invented about three years ago is that setting these policies in the absence of a human fiduciary, like a doctor or a lawyer, to advise you as to how to run your trustee, assuming you had a trustee, a human trustee, was basically impossible for normal human beings, and that they were going to be either disinterested or manipulated, or typically both. Mm -hmm. So we had to invent this idea of the community. We call it a trustee community, which is in itself a self-sovereign entity. Just like if you wanted to start mm -hmm. a gang or a club tomorrow and just keep it to yourselves, um, that would be a self-sovereign entity of self-sovereign individuals. Um, so uh, we literally had to introduce into the code base the ability for individual trustees to inherit policies, as well as support, of course, from uh, peer groups that uh, wanted to look more like cooperatives or literally clubs or gangs uh, because of this mm -hmm. problem that when it comes to technology, even after you deal with the standards successfully, which I think we are dealing with them successfully right. in general, um, you still have that problem of how do you replace the human fiduciary? That's so Seth, uh-oh, I'm getting the echo too. It's just Echo City today. So, Seth, uh-oh, I'm getting the echo too. It's just Echo City today. Um, what does it mean for someone to act on our behalf in terms of privacy? And how do we even know what is good for us in the world of surveillance capital well, where we're addicted to our devices and giving them all of our information commercially and in horribly politicized regulatory climate here in the United right States? To have a fiduciary. Um, in other words, uh, we don't ask people to face the, the court as pro se, as they call it, right, as, as individuals. You basically say it is a human right for you to be assigned a defense lawyer. And that defense lawyer has really only one job, is to be your fiduciary. We don't prescribe, uh, we don't give out drugs or medical devices over the counter unless they're incredibly safe. We don't ask individuals to face the medical industrial complex. Um, uh, by themselves. We introduce this entity called a physician. And what's, what makes them 
usable in that role. Um, what does it mean for them to act on our behalf? It's that they are freely chosen by us. They are not imposed as the local mega hospital that, or the local public health authority in these days of COVID that people may or may not trust. Um, it's not a matter of choose your captors between Google and Apple in their particular walled garden around whatever privacy settings they are. You introduce a, a, an intermediary which is freely chosen by the individual. So HIE of one is that uh, concept of rather than asking me to manage my preferences manually, my privacy preferences, whether it's those five check boxes that we see on GDPR websites or, you know, anything else, that I'm going to introduce a piece of technology, the trustee from HIE of one, that inherits the default policies from, say, the church. I get to choose which church I go to. I may even choose to go to two churches, or I may go to choose to no churches. That, that trustee inherits ah. the policies from that, just like I inherit policies from my parents or from you know, the bunch of friends that I hang out with. But as an individual, I get to, in the self-sovereign right. sense, change any of those policies that I don't want to. So I don't do everything that my parents taught me to do. I might do 90% of what they teach me to do. And so it is this idea that we sort of, like I say, uncovered or invented that we had to have self-sovereignty at both levels in mm -hmm. order to have self-sovereignty at all. Because without the community as the so as as my chosen by me, the technical fiduciary is ineffective mm -hmm. because it's still asking me to do too much. So in the in the legal so in those two in the context of in the legal context and the medical context, um, so in the in the legal, so in those two, in the context of, in the legal context, well, uh, in the medical context. Unfortunately, some people don't know that it's in um, their best interest. And the court is I wouldn't to go to trial or, or, or go to court yeah. if I didn't have a lawyer. I know that, right? I have a right to that. I know it's in my best interest yeah. to have somebody represent me. True, true, true. But, but, right, but in, if I if I do it, if I try to do it on my own, the court will appoint somebody for me that I choose. I have some agency over that. You know, medically, like you said, I mean, yeah. people buy things, you know, try to do medical procedures outside of the lines. But by and large, um, I'm not going to take mm -hmm. a random pill from a pharmaceutical company without having a doctor advising me. And yes, there can be conflicts of interest, but but sort of there's a there's a baked and, in and they've heard of cultural the understanding. Even though most people name, won't use the word fiduciary, the right. they know there's some protection. They know there's some advocacy. They, they know there's somebody they can trust who has their interest. True. Yes. So now when we when we shift it to digital privacy. Um, my sense is people don't even know that they 
need or right. even deserve and so, somebody and or some Aaliyah entity to advocate for them. This, They've been trained this, or, or current inculcated uh, last, like or say, persuaded to believe most. that they Where can do it themselves. People are trying to invent data commons, data fiduciaries, data trusts, uh, you name it. As, as you know, Take the, this, their dictionary, open it to any page you want, and you'll find at least one data commons-like thing that you could call because they are struggling to figure out exactly what you just said. They're basically saying uh, that they're, they're trying to figure out this concept in, in many different ways. You know, one of the most obvious is, you know, what's the responsibility for twi of Twitter? If I choose to use Twitter and before Remember, Twitter was completely protected. Uh, you know, they could do no wrong up until a year or two ago, as long as because you had a choice. It was called notice and consent. As long as they didn't lie about their privacy policies, they could do whatever they want in terms of information filtering or, or whatever. Uh, and now people are trying to say, well, do we need to replace Twitter? Do we need to regulate it as a commons or a trust of some sort? because of exactly what you said. Yeah, that, right. Sure. So when you think about, you talked about the adoption of, um, of standards, you know, on top of mainframes, so that became T, you know, on top of Ethernet, right? So that became TCP, yes, et cetera. Uh, Was there a there fork is, in the road a, when you look back that difficult had things for to wrap their heads evolved differently? We might not um, be in the situation and, that there might have uh, been the, a clearer mandate for talk about this, privacy fiduciaries. Uh, people uh, talked about the IP protocol being the so-called narrow waste in a separation of concerns. And, right, you had the, the layers of the telecom stack or whatever you want. Uh, and uh, somebody, uh, the, the, the generative thing, the thing that made the internet what it is today, was somebody realized, it, realized that you actually didn't want the layers in the OSI seven layer sense. And I know I'm throwing jargon out here at a rate that put anybody to sleep, but they decided that what was going to be done by design is to have the internet protocol, the IP component, the IP standard, in particular, be a narrow waste that no matter what you did above and below, no, where below you have like transport layers, you know, like Bluetooth or Ethernet or whatnot. And above you have uh, DNS and naming and routing conventions and applications and apps and whatnot, um, that there was going to be this one thing in the middle that was going to stand alone and be compatible with anything you wanted to do above and below it and it was called IP, and it was so-called a narrow waste. And this turned out to be incredibly generative. You could build so many things. But what people realized, started to realize maybe five, 10 years ago, some people who are a lot sharper realized it even before that, was that there was no identity or security layer built into that narrow waste. That the, and some people then said, well, this is a good thing because the internet would not have been as generative as it has been 
if we had built in, you know, uh, a privacy layer into it or a security layer into it. And I don't disagree with that. But what the fork in the road, the opportunity that was missed, which right now is still being missed by almost everybody except for NIST and a couple of very, very interested sort of, is that uh, the security and identity layer of the internet or of whatever the network of tomorrow is going to be is going to have to look like a combination of three things, which are not industry specific. The narrow ways that's coming is going to have authentication, authorization, and audit, what I call the three A's, as the narrow waste in the protocol space. In other words, no matter whether you're thinking about law or healthcare or commerce or whether you're going to use the internet or use, uh, you know, cameras with QR codes and facial recognition uh, that are talking to each other, you know, by light beams or whatever. Uh, no matter how you slice it, either in the domain sense or in the information transfer stack, routing protocols, encryption protocols, all of these things, uh, you know, blockchain-like things, no matter how you slice it, people will always take the three things, authentication, how you sign into something and you are recognized as having been there before, authorization, how you use that to control the processing of the data that is associated with that identifier, and then audit how, who then gets to watch over that individual um, policy enforcement point, the authorization point, to make sure that they're not cheating. And these three things are now starting to be talked about in terms of something called zero trust architecture quite recently, which now has shifted the debate about privacy, which was always a two-edged sword, you know, oh, you know, it's going to cost me money if I give people more privacy, into a security debate for the first time, which is it's going to cost me money because I cannot afford to do the security necessary to introduce or differentiate my product if I don't handle authorization, authentication, and audit as part of the design of that service, having nothing to do with privacy. It's simply the ability to hold that doctor or hold that clerk or hold that delivery person at Amazon that's going to supposedly put the package on your porch. Uh, you no longer can control those at the institutional level. Amazon can't use a firewall to keep that delivery person honest. If they're not in their own car. They're not using a phone from Amazon. It's not Amazon's porch unless it's the locker at Whole Foods. Um, and so uh, NIST uh, has done very good work, uh, National Institute of Standards and Technology here. But now there is a realization amongst entities of all sizes. You don't have to be Amazon or Apple to realize this. You can be a startup. You could be a My Data Operator wannabe. You could be any of these service providers that are starting to realize that their ability to differentiate their product and provide these services like home delivery done by random intermediaries uh, from random places sometimes uh, is going to require treating people as individuals 
with specific authorizations and that the audit point is no longer going to be the corporate boundary called the firewall. I mean, it just makes me think to, you know, basic, you know, I mean, it just makes me think to, you know, basic, you know, low hanging fruit, you know, common denominator, you know, com, you know, consumer internet services. When you, th when I think about authentication um, and authorization and audit, you know, the easiest, quickest way to get scale is to do it through and Google OAuth standards. or Facebook Connect not using or Amazon yeah. or Apple. Right. It's precisely... So, you know, the, it, well, maybe the way, not in Apple's and, and case, it's the big surveillance capitalists that, that are the ones trying to drive the both in our conversations and in our roles. Because I basically now claim that doing the appropriate all the, 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 the three A's, I agree. But sort of how do we get out of this loop? Well, or to think of timestamps on a blockchain, it's basically just that. Uh, you know, it's you know you can store the documents in encrypted data vaults or wherever you want it's where you put the timestamp and who has access to that document that you've stored that is the audit function um so uh sure. you can't talk about uh data comments you can't talk about data operators my data operators outside without first introducing the standards you cannot regulate your way out of this fork in the road that you asked me about. Just like you can't regulate your way out of saying, if we're gonna have a generative internet 25 years ago, we need to have the IP protocol that we adopt, not because somebody said you have to adopt the IP protocol. You know, nobody rang the bell and said, today we start, we move from, you know, uh, packet switching IBM to whatever. Uh, industry, itself decided that, just like in my radiology business, industry itself decided that they had to separate the CT scanner from the workstation that the doctor used by a standard protocol. It wasn't a matter of lobbying for something to happen. Well, people are, I would maintain that people are going to have to figure this out fairly quickly now, that no matter whether they're selling cars, you know, with cameras and connections for vehicle-to-vehicle -vehicle communications or anti-theft, you know, like the Teslas are going to show you pictures of what's around your car if you have the app, even if there isn't somebody trying to break into it. And, you know, all these kinds of things, uh, people are not going to be able to do this unless they introduce these standards first. And these are the standards which Kalia and I primarily work on. You're muted. Well, but it's not, uh, that's easy. Self, that, that's been around now and, and pretty well through, but I'm talking about a self-sovereign technology because self-sovereign identity does not do authorization. It only does the authentication part. It, it self-sovereign identity. The uh, predicates for doing authorization, it's called a, a service endpoint. It's a particular component of a self-sovereign identifier standard. Um, and Kalia and I have done a lot of work uh, on sort of identifying, you know, 
what's the role of a service endpoint? Do we need them? How do we know what's, which ones are going to be generative enough to be worth putting in the, the specs? You know, that's work that Kalia has done, I'm, I'm doing, and a few others. So just to put a note on, you keep talking, you use this word generative, and I think it's really interesting. Um, I haven't used it, I haven't heard it used that way recently, but it sounds to me when you say generative, um, and when you talk about, um, I guess, the narrow waste, or you know, some of these early you know, forks in the road being more generative than others, to me it suggests that... Um, grounds for innovation, right? It's in spot, you know, sort of uh, fertile ground to create new things and new technologies. And part of that is to motivate business creation, right? And motivate mm-hmm. um, venture capital and motivate startups and entrepreneurship. Yes, um, we, we call them platforms. And so we've seen that happen, that. which has been well, the thing that has created all this data you know, we've and all gone the need for privacy. A that have generated mostly based out of trying Silicon to Valley, capture I would say singularly right, focused and, and on from how much money do you have standards. to throw at a good enough management team, regardless of what they're good enough in general at, other than raising money, in order to create a platform. And yeah, so you see basically Slack being sold to Salesforce as, uh, you know, as maybe the just the best example of today's uh, platform thinking. Uh, Somebody has a good idea. It's called Google. And then over the space of three or four or five years, people figure out that hey, you can throw money at this and eventually you will build a barrier to entry that nobody can surmount. All you have to have is a good enough management team. Well, you you, you have to break up the platforms because what people are complaining about now is, um, you know, should we? No, no, I, I get the, the lock-in aspects, and I guess what I'm just trying to understand is, um, with, right? Is how they're, can we have how can we have a, how can we have these generative opportunities? Facebook. Like when we talk when we're talking Twitter. about self-sovereign technology, uh, because they're okay. they're they've lost control of those platforms. Those platforms are, um, you know, uh, you know, the Chinese basically go and figure out how to build their own platforms that are separate, you know, et cetera, um, if they want to have some control. But in Europe, they're not going to do what the Chinese are doing for good reasons. Um, and so they are running around like chickens with their heads cut off, trying to figure out what kind of regulation must we pass that gives an advantage in this generative sense to people who are not coming out of Silicon Valley with that kind of money behind them as incumbents. And uh, I would maintain that they're not going to figure it out, Uh, that the only thing that they will eventually figure it out in Europe is that there is a human right to control data, 
because they're much more prone to doing human rights than either the U.S. or the uh, Chinese or other Asian and um, countries, right? And once they figure out that the basis that they need to move to is a human rights-based perspective, then they realize that you can introduce authorization, authentication, and audit as a human right because, you know, we don't give people, we, we don't restrict access to clean water or safe roads because, you know, I can pay for it and so screw you, right? We, we understand that clean water and safe roads as infrastructure are not just generative in the sense that they mm. contribute to innovation and what kind of store you put up or what kind of food you make, but that it also protects all of society. You don't want people running around, you know, doing the Cambridge Analytica thing uh, behind the scenes uh, because you haven't figured out, you know, how to sanitize authentication, authorization, and audit uh, sufficiently because it's all behind the platform you call Facebook, right? So we are, so I believe that the Europeans have not, actually figured this out yet, but I do think that they will because that is the, and then the question will become, well, will the U.S. figure out a human rights perspective on these standards? Right. Yeah. Well, that I have a right to go and interact. And that's in the meaning of self-sovereign as I use it. So in other words, it's not just that I have a self-sovereign identity. That, that I, I have, I have a right to a self-sovereign authorization protocol as are centered as well around me and my needs and interests you know, and like that I'm not just court. I have a right to partake of the small claims court. That's the audit. Yeah. So am I. Right. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's really, um, it's good work. Um, next week, Adrian and I will both be, um, at, I know I'm on more than one panel um, at My Data, and I'm on a panel Adrian's leading. So the My Data conference is coming up next week that our audience may be really interested in joining. And I, I also have an announcement about a conference I'm putting on in early February called the Thoughtful Biometrics Conference, which is an event bringing together biometric scientists, identity management folks, and civil society um, advocates who are concerned about biometrics to support a dialogue happening um, between all these groups that typically don't talk to each other. So it should be really interesting. We'll be using open space technology and the agenda will be co-created the day of the event by the people who are there. Fantastic. So I'm, I'm, I'm still, my mind is spinning from some of the stuff you've been talking about. So I just want to, maybe a, a final question or, or, or thought 
uh, for you, Adrian, before we wrap it up. Um, but so what I have here, I'm scrawling in my notebook, I keep coming back to generative and human rights as it relates to privacy. And so I, and, and when I think about generative human rights movements, right, I think about, I don't know, I just jump to, um, you know, women's rights, um, BLM, like at what point does privacy I, take well, I, I think on we're starting that to kind see of it. urgency uh, for people you know, where they uh, feel, they recognize that this year, their privacy, the privacy and their data is their fundamental granted. human right and, and it's worth fighting about the privacy and, and, and that becomes generative as opposed before. to but, wow, Sequoia you know, just put thirty million dollars into this privacy uh, you know, tech company, and they're going to become the new platform. That uh, people would sell their first firstborn for a slice of pizza. Uh, it, the firstborn was in the form of data, not physical, but right. So, uh, or uh, the most recent example is clear. Uh, the people that let you through through what I call ambient authentication. Uh, they let you through the turnstiles. So now that convenience that you're, you yourself are paying 179 bucks a year and they're splitting that with the airport. Well, okay. Uh, but what are they doing? They're now introducing it for free into sports stadiums. And the next thing you know, they'll put it in in front of an Amazon store or an Amazon-like store so you can walk in and buy. In other words, Exactly. Right. So I call this ambient authentication. And the thing about our privacy laws as they stand today is that there is no limit. Anybody with a $500 worth of iPhone has enough facial recognition power and networking or power. Or worse, I know about major U.S. cities that are talking about installing it across the whole city to reopen after COVID. Perspective, and maybe even from yours, lets you through that, uh, you know, that door um, whether you knew it or not. And you could have literally, our laws allow 10,000, 100,000 of these back ends, each one of them with a copy of your face and whatever, your iris, if they get a little bit more clever. Um, so uh, what to answer your question, I think we have reached the limits of young people, uh, not my generation or even yours, but young people being uh, uh, inf uh, taken by the privacy paradox. I think this generation is starting to look at the Trojan horse that these conveniences represent and are realizing for whatever reason that they have to be more thoughtful about what they're paying for in convenience in terms of their ability to, you know, to live in Hong Kong or uh, anything in between. Um, so we may be seeing that. The other thing I would say is that we will start to see companies compete on the basis of privacy uh, and the, their willingness to support a self-sovereign agent. And that's this gold button initiative that I'll be talking about at the My Data conference. And, uh, and I'm talking about it in the context of the W3C standards. Because, you know, if you're a GM competing against Ford uh, and you have an opportunity to say it is your human right to control the data that streams out of your car, 
or at least to, to know where it's going, even if you can't control it for whatever reason, and to hold those people that are getting it accountable in the audit sense. The company that does that may, regardless of the privacy paradox, now has a sellable thing, number one. Number two, there's that, remember, that security zero trust architecture component that's, again, just money. Um, and so I think we will be seeing both of these things. We'll see peop, uh, companies trying to compete on privacy, which they are not now, not even Apple. Apple's going backwards with uh, the recent operating system release. There, uh, Your computer now looks more like an iPhone in terms of the app store and the things you can't control than ever before. Now, hopefully they will reverse that. Hopefully that's just temporary. But if they don't, then it's basically a lot of people are not going to be saying what I used to say, which is Apple is an example, and you said it yourself. Uh, because right now they're going in the wrong direction. But again, look at their actions, not at what they say. And, you know, so they are advertising privacy but they are preventing self-sovereign behavior and they are not participating in the standards that Kalia and I work on at all. Uh, and that I can tell. Can you? But they're going in a split direction. They're advertising privacy in their commercials, but obviously the operating system is moving in a different direction. Fair enough. No, no, we have no idea whether they are participating or not because Apple doesn't publicly participate. They might be there, but we don't know. That's a that, so that's here, here's a question. Debated. Like, you have in the you have in Silicon Valley mostly, um, and again, so I like to blame Silicon do we need Valley, to have a human also, you know where rights things happened kind uh, of come to Jesus moment. In so order to drive self-sovereign technologies, <clears throat> you know, or do we need to have self-sovereign uh, technologies in place in order to recognize uh, the human rights ask, of privacy? Uh, you know, a lot of the tech people that are like me, they can now afford to turn themselves into advocates. Um, you know, uh, yeah, uh, go ask those people who who basically are trying to say. Um, you know, you, you saw the essay maybe a couple of months ago from IETF, from some guy at IETF saying that uh, they need to put human center, human, human perspective first. I forget. You remember the, the reference, Kalia? Um, human Kapoor. rights first or human's first perspective at IETF? Yeah. Right. So you're starting to see uh, major standards organizations, which are obviously industrially controlled and have to be because those are the people, like I say, that's Silicon Valley building things. And, you know, that's that's just the way it's going to be. Uh, so, yeah, there is a group of people that's yeah, they to had say to that center the individual people in their needs and not this, just the uh, are going to have to take a much firmer stand uh, not just on things like discrimination, you know, black, white, or woman, gender-based, but just in terms of human rights. 
And so that could work, or uh, it might require that it be bottom-up uh, with groups that look more like the Free Software Foundation, let's say, that, uh, uh, or maybe EFF, uh, and like entities, right? That basically say, uh, no, you know, the, we, we just have to have a different substrate for the human rights manifestation. And it doesn't look like tech first. My, my pleasure. I always like working with Kali on this stuff. She uh, she has her own mind with respect to this, and between us, I think we're making a difference. This has been great. Um, I'm pretty charged up. We could go on for another hour. I know, but we need to wrap <laughs> it up. <laughs> Thank you for coming on, Adrian. Thank you so much. Notice. Just really fantastic perspective. Um, yeah. I hope so. I believe so. And on behalf of uh, Adrian and uh, and Kalia, um, this is PSA today, uh, and we'll be back next week. Thank you both. Thanks. Bye.